At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This week, we're sharing with you a special episode. It was a collaboration we did with the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity. Yep, such a society exists. There are people who are looking at the brain basis of what makes us creative. And I'm lucky enough to be one of the collaborators of that organization. During our annual meeting, we had the pleasure of programming food science writer Kenji Lopez-Alt in a live conversation with our members. It was a joy to talk to Kenji. And if you're not familiar with his work, check out the Food Lab in which he takes a scientific approach to cooking. And he's got a new book out called The Walk, which I have to say describes uses of a kitchen utensil that I never reach for. But apparently, he does all the time. So here's my conversation with Kenji. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Crosstalk, presented by the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity and co-produced by Inquiring Minds. My name is Indre Viscontis. I'm the host of Inquiring Minds and the president-elect of the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity. And I'm so excited to present this crosstalk event with legendary chef, food scientist, all of the above, uh, author Kenji Lopez-Alt. Welcome. All right. <laughs> How are you doing? Good, good. Although I'm technically, I'm technically not neither a scientist because I'm, I'm not really a scientist and I'm not even a chef anymore because I don't have this <laughs> anymore. So. Okay, so well, how do you, so how, do you, how do you label yourself? I mean, um, author, or, or writer, yeah. Writer, writer. Okay, Food great. science writer. Food right. science writer. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey, um, because you started out, as far as I understand, in an architecture degree at MIT. Uh, yes. I, well, I ended up with an architecture degree at MIT. Oh, okay. Um, okay, great. I started out with, in, a, in the biology program and then um, uh, stopped doing that after taking um, organic chemistry uh, oh. <laughs> and and then realizing and not everything about biology is going to be what I enjoy about biology. And it also made me realize that I actually really did not like lab work. And I'd worked in labs for a couple of summers through school and uh, lab work I did not enjoy. Um, and you got to do a lot of lab work in, in, when you're in biology. And so that sort of made me think I need to rethink my career choice here. So what what didn't you like about lab work? The pace mainly that, um, you know, reading and learning biology, it's like 
you can read and learn very fast, but to do actual experiments takes a long time um, and a lot of planning. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't mind doing long, you know, I don't mind planning and doing hard work and spending a long time working on something, but it has to be something where I'm not just interested in the result, but I'm also, you know, actively enjoying the process. And unfortunately, uh, pipetting and, and running PCR machines and stuff, just the, the process was not something I enjoyed. How does that compare to prepping ingredients for, you know, when you're cooking? I mean, so prepping ingredients can also be, you know, some people don't like that, right? You know, it's like um, I went into restaurant, you know, that summer, I, I started cooking because that's the, the summer after my sophomore year when I, which is when I sort of had this thought that I don't want to do biology. Um, mm. Instead of working in a biology lab, I ended up landing a job in a kitchen just randomly. You know, I never really cooked before um, and mm. somebody offered me a job cooking for the summer. So, you know, working in a, in a kitchen can actually, I think a lot of people would find it mind numbing as well. You know, some of my early restaurant jobs, it's like, Every single morning I would go in and for an hour I would sit there peeling and then chopping citrus zest, right? Because mm -hmm. we would do this like powdered citrus zest over a bunch of dish, different, different dishes. And so I just sit there with a knife, just chop, 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 chop for like an hour. Um, and so that, you know, that I think some people would find that mind numbing, but I actually, for some reason, like that kind of work just kind of clicks with me. Um, and also like, you know, I enjoyed sort of setting up challenges for myself. It's like the first day I did it, it took me like three hours to do, you know, and then like a few months in, I realized like, Oh, instead of one knife, I can like, I can take a rubber band and, and tie the handles of three knives together and then bounce them all together. And it goes three times as fast as that. I just get more fit and my muscles get better at it also. So you can cut down like a three hour project into 35 minutes and you feel like that's a valuable use of three months, <laughs> three months huh. of work to, to, um, and it's also, you know, I think kitchens, I think are just more for me, at least are, I could sit there and chop onions for a very long time, much longer than I can um, really getting bored of it. Um, and I don't know, you tell me, it's just the way my brain is wired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I won't, I won't presume to know anything about, um, you know, your wire, brain wiring, but I do think that <laughs> there is like, I think there is a cultural side to it too, though. I think that a lot of times, you know, the seriousness of the work that happens in science tends to make lab environments very quiet, you know, just like not having a lot of joy and fun. Whereas I think right. like in the kitchen, maybe if like the ultimate goal is to, you know, create a, a great experience for the customer, maybe there's more of a push towards like having cool music in the kitchen or there is, you know? um, yeah, there's cool music sometimes, but a lot, a lot of kitchens are also very, you know, very, there's various types of kitchens, but most kitchens are pretty also very focused, you know, because mm -hmm. you're, you're working on really tight deadlines and there's a lot of pressure. Um, and so, <laughs> Most of the time, like in a kitchen, like at least any well-run kitchen, people are going to have their heads down, working hard. And so there's a lot of sort of intense focus and adrenaline that goes on. And then, of course, like, you know, in the in the old days and and still to some degree now, you know, kitchens are also had this sort of like abusiveness to them. So right. that wasn't fun. Um, um, yeah. You know what? Yeah, there's a lot of abuse is not fun. And that happens a lot in kitchens. Yeah. I don't know how much Less verbal abuse happens in labs but there's certainly b bad behavior that happens in labs. oh yeah i mean i've heard yeah i've heard stories of um, i mean bad behavior i think happens anywhere where there's power dynamics at play all right so you did this um you spent this summer working in in this restaurant mm -hmm. uh, and you have also you have this chemistry background also in your family right i mean there's like uh um, my my grandfather's organic chem is an is an organic chemist uh and um actually it was like one of his colleagues taught the class that i hated but um, my grandfather is an organic <laughs> chemist and um, my father is a biologist. So, yeah, so, and, and, and we lived in the same. So my grandparents lived on 9J and we lived in 10J, the same part. Uh -huh. um, and so we have, you know, meals together. And so, you know, just around the dinner table, it's like when, whenever my grandfather and my father were in the same room, then 
like all conversation was just science all the time. Um, so it was kind of one of the languages spoken in my family growing up. Um, so something that I always had an interest in uh, beyond just school. So then where did, how did architecture fit in? I mean, essentially after that summer, um, I continued to cook. I mean, I love cooking. So I continued to cook part time while I was in school. And then, um, you know, I kind of shopped around and I, and I was like, maybe I'll do computer science. Yeah, I, I did, I did all the sort of basic courses in like computer science and mechanical engineering and physics. And then, and architecture was one I just thought like, seems like it could be fun. And it turned out it was fun. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I started, I started architecture and then, uh, finished in architecture, spent the rest of my time focusing. I had to like make up a bunch of credits because I started it late and everyone in my class was like a year below me, but, um, I, I, you know, I finished it. And so like, you know, that education in, in architecture, how did that influence your later career trajectory? Well, you know, yeah, people ask this a lot. I mean, I, I don't know that the specific education in architecture had a huge impact. Um, you know, there are definitely parallels in architecture and food. Um, in that both of them are these things that on one hand are, you know, are purely functional because we need to live in spaces, we need to eat food. Um, and they're things that everybody, you know, that things that everybody does. Um, but on the other hand, there's this sort of, you know, artistic side to it and creative side to it. And so it's one of the few things like even more so than say music or visual arts, you know, where people have to live somewhere and people have to eat. Right. And so in that sense, like you, as, as an architect or or a chef, you're forced not just to contend with the sort of artistic merits of something, but also the the functional aspects of something. Um, mm. So you have to think about both those things. And so in that sense, I think architecture and food are related because they both have this idea of functionality and form um, creativity that have to be sort of balanced out and have to work together. But I, I would say it was more just the sort of the general science and engineering background you get mm. from going to a school like MIT that I think um, has influenced my my career more just the, um, hmm. as far as the way I think about uh, food and the way I and the way I try and teach people how to cook um, is very, very much focused in those sort of like first elements, you know, ideas of learning the basics and learning the science behind it and building up from there. Yeah. So it seems uh, as an outsider, when I look at sort of the culture of cooking, there seems to be some dominion of celebrity chefs or, you know, people who are in the know hmm. or like people like Julia Child, who hmm. um, maybe aren't overtly like glamorous and famous to begin with but they they have this authority that they have that they kind of like here's a here's a cookbook here's a recipe here's how to do something and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about to what extent this kind of authoritative looking down you know differs or influence or like you know your your approach of taking more of a scientific look like okay what is actually the best way to make a chocolate chip cookie like this is this mm -hmm. empirical question <laughs> and why <laughs> as opposed to like I, you know, i'm jamie oliver and i'm gonna bake this cookie from you know right <laughs> well so you know i try not to say so i do have recipes that have titles like um you know the, the best chocolate chip cookie or whatever <laughs> you, do, you do um uh, I, I try not to use that terminology anymore mainly because i feel like it sort of got misinterpreted from what um from the way i used it you know i did that so, so i came from you know i worked at cooks illustrated for they had that sort of that naming style um and then when i went to serious seats i kind of did it in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way like you know whatever is you know it, it is partly that it's also partly like people click on things that say best, whatever. And at that time, we, we'd made our revenue on clicks and we had payroll and all this stuff that we had to do. So we had to get people to click somehow. But the general rule we had at Serious Eats, at least, and when I'm writing like a Food Lab article, is that when we call something best, what we really mean is like, in this 
article, we're going to show you all of the different factors that go into, say, making beef stew or making a chocolate chip cookie or making fried chicken. Um, and we're going to show you all the different variables and all the things you can change and how each changing each one of those things is going to affect the outcome. And so while I'm going to present you with one single chocolate chip cookie recipe that I'm going to say this is the best chocolate chip, chip cookie recipe, what I really mean by best is that if you read this whole article and you follow along on the testing, then you're going to be armed with the knowledge of how to make your own version of, you know, whatever is best to you. So it's not, I'm not saying like this particular cookie is empirically the best cookie. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that everybody has a particular idea of what is best. And, you know, maybe that idea of what's best changes over time. It's like you don't have to always have the exact same chocolate chip cookie, right? It's like what I'm in the mood right. for today. I might not be in the mood for tomorrow. But if I've done all this testing on chocolate chip cookies and I know that like, you know, using a higher ratio of brown sugar to white sugar is going to make the cookie moister. Or if I melt the butter before adding it, it's going to make the cookie spread more and get like a lacier edge. Like knowing those things is going to allow me to modify the recipe so that I can get it towards a result mm -hmm. that I would consider best at that moment for myself. Um, and so that that's really what I mean um, in those articles when I say best. And that, of course, that's not how it necessarily gets interpreted, right? Some people will say, oh, he said it's best, but I don't think that's best. And it's like, <laughs> right. that's fine. You don't have to think it's best. Um, but it's, you know, it's hard to express all those ideas without being able to sit there and explain to someone exactly what you meant, you know, and people online like to be offended by things, like to express opinions. So yeah, yeah. I can't, can't really help that. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. Um, you know, one of the things that hearing you talk about this, it, it reminds me too of a lot of the struggles that people who study creativity come come <laughs> along with, which is the, the sense that a creativity researcher believes that it is important to understand how a creativity works and, you know, what mm -hmm. what's happening in the brain when people are being creative under different conditions and how can we enhance it. And there's a whole, you know, slew of individuals too who think that well, you can never really demystify creativity. You need to leave some things unanswered. It's never going to be, you're never going to quite get what you need. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you ever have had this encounter where there is this push and pull between understanding why you in a recipe would suggest to do this things and, you know, either use the, use the tools that you're using or the ingredients or in this order and how that kind of relates to the sort of like should there be some mystery in cooking, right? Like that there's just some like, you know, like, like, like a magician who never gives up all of their secrets. Like, do you, is there ever that tension? And Oh, that there should be like a, like a secret ingredient. I mean. Yeah. Or like that people are like, well, Kenji's not really, you know, it's like, it's like they, they might not trust what you say so much because you're showing exactly why you think each right. step is out of the way, as opposed to like, well, just trust me. I know. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, the reason I don't say just trust me, I know is because I, I, I hate when people do that to me. It's like, I, you know, I like, I'm the kind of person who wants to take apart the toaster oven and see what's going on inside it, you know? Um, but creativity for me, it's like, I studied a lot of music when I was younger, particularly um, composition, right? And so if you, if you look at like um, old manuscripts by like Mozart versus Beethoven, right? They, they're both extremely creative people, but they had very different processes. Whereas like, you know, like you look at a Mozart manuscript, it's like, this guy wrote the thing. He came up with it in his head. He wrote it once. Nothing's erased. Nothing's crossed out. It's just like it came from his mind, fully formed, and he put it on the paper. And there it is, right? Whereas like if you look at like a Beethoven manuscript, it's like things are scratched out until there's like holes in the paper because he goes back and forth and really works on a, on a, on a single idea. And so, you know, for me, like I'm more the type that when I'm writing or when I'm coming up with a recipe, I write a ton. 
like I write mm. thousands and thousands, like even my children's book, which ended up being, I remember a few hundred words. I wrote like tens of thousands of words for that. And then I edit and edit and edit until I get it the way I want it. And so, yeah, I'm much more of this sort of tinker type mm. of creative where it's like, I, I get as many ideas as I can out there. And then I decide for myself, which ones are good and which ones are bad. And I think, you know, honestly, like having um, a medium, like, you know, like serious seats, a blog, you know, where it's like, I'm writing and publishing like five to six articles a week. That's actually like right. a very, it's, it's a good, it was a good medium for me to learn how to write in, um, because, you know, that's essentially where I sort of learned how to write in my voice and how to come up with ideas. And uh, it's a really good medium because it's like, there's this, this constant fire hose of stuff coming out and that people don't always expect everything to be perfect. And some, and the good stuff sticks and the bad stuff you can work on it. Right. But it's something that forces you to, to write every day. Um, hmm. so what, you know, whether it's cooking or writing or whatever, I think just, just doing it all the time, even if every single idea is not a good one, just by the sheer act of doing so much of it, you're bound to come up with some good ideas now and then. And those are the ones that are going to end up sort of sticking and informing your future decisions. Um, so I'm not sure I exactly understood the, the setup of your question, but, um, but for me, the process of creativity is really about doing as much as I possibly can and then, and then editing it and hoping that I can that occasionally something, um, you know, one of those hundred ideas is a, is a good one and not caring if the other 99 aren't. Um, well, despite my Ill, Ill asked question, I feel like you actually touched on something that a lot of creativity researchers are nodding their heads and saying that's exactly right. And that is that so often we think of creativity as being one spontaneous aha moment. But right. when you look at the actual process, when you interview creatives, what you hear is exactly what you're describing, which is I had a thousand ideas before I had the one good idea. Right, and, right. You know, <laughs> An example I can give is, um, you know, in my, in my book, um, I had this recipe for this um, potato gratin where the idea was instead of stacking the potatoes, layering them like shingles, you stand them up on their edge so that they're um, like mm. fanned out, right? And so when you bake this, yeah, and then you do it in like a normal gratin, like cream, a little bit of cheese, um, garlic, thyme, salt and pepper, milk, and then you and then you bake it. But as you bake it, like the top edges of the potatoes kind of dry out and turn crispy like potato chips. And mm. you know the way I wrote it is like, and 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 this sort of was how it happened, where it's like in, I in the, it was late at night, and I was like, oh, it's November, we need a potato recipe. Hey, wait a minute, like what if I just tilt the potatoes on their sides, you know, and I woke up, my wife was like, I had this great idea for this potato thing. And she's like, yeah, that's great. Show, show me, show me tomorrow. It felt like a spontaneous idea at the moment. But the only reason I had that idea is because I've made like a million potato recipes and I kind of know how potatoes work. So there's all this stuff already swimming in my head. And then at the time, it's like Hasselback potatoes, you know, where you take a potato and you kind of cut almost all the way through it and then you bake it. Mm. Um, and, mm, the edge. Yeah. and that like, that was like this, like kind of meme going around the internet for a while, like this popular mm recipe. So it's like, I obviously had this idea of like these flaky potato upright things. And then, then just combine that with the idea of a potato gratin, which I, which is like a classic holiday dish. And then I looked it up. I was like, has nobody done this before? And I looked up and I tried to find books. I tried to find recipes on the internet. And it seemed like nobody had done it before. So I was like, oh, that's, that's an original idea. People are going to like this. And now when I write it, I can, you know, I can exaggerate the fact that it's just like, I made some Eddie Izzard joke about how he has a joke about how um, when um, Heimlich invents his maneuver, he wakes his wife up and I've invented a maneuver. But, um, but uh, you know, it, it, you can make it sound like it's this spontaneous thing. But, and even, but even when it is a spontaneous thing, it's like the only reason that you can come up with ideas like that spontaneously is because you've like fed all this other information into this funnel in your, in your head and like something popped out the other end that happened to be good that time. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes we we distinguish like what you're talking about, which sounds to me like you did a whole bunch of kind of preparation work and then you kind of incubated it on for a while. And then then you had this kind of aha moment where like mm-hmm. it kind of popped up as opposed to uh, a more kind of step by step approach, which actually a lot of people following your recipes are doing where you're slowly getting closer to the solution to a problem. And I, I wondered if maybe like your reverse steak so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the reverse searing on the steak sure. idea, like, did that also come to, to you in a moment or was it more so, like a... So that one was at Cook's Illustrated. That was actually my first article at Cook's Illustrated. Uh, I think I started working that in 2006. Um, and uh, the assignment, the editorial assignment was just a, you know, we haven't done a pan-seared steak recipe. Kenji, like, come up with a recipe for pan-seared steak, make some pan sauces. And so that was one of those, that you know, when I was... I was young and eager to prove myself. And so that was like, all right, like I'm going to test every single thing I can about pan searing steak, like, you know, letting it come up to room temperature first, cooking it straight from the fridge, cooking it from frozen, cooking it in oil, cooking in butter, all these different things. Um, and then, um, you know, the reason that one came is because at that time, 2006, I, my last job before that was working at a restaurant, Oclea, which doesn't exist anymore, but uh, Chef Ken Oranger. And Right around then, 2004, 2005 was when sous vide machines first started getting widely mm-hmm. used in restaurants. I and mean, so I borrowed a circulator from my dad's lab, like a like a, an actual mm-hmm. lab equipment and brought it into the restaurant to work because at that point there were no specifically food service sous vide machines and people were all using this kind of recycled lab equipment. I mean, so I, I borrowed one from my dad to do it. So we, we cooked a bunch of stuff sous vide at the restaurant. And so we were first learning how it worked. Um, and then, so, you know, that was sort of fresh in my head when I came to Cook's Illustrated. And so the idea with the reverse sear was like, well, like sous vide was such a useful tool at the restaurant. And one of the usefulness, useful aspects of it is that you can bring a piece of meat up to a certain temperature and not overshoot at all. Like you can guarantee that it's going to be medium rare, mm. right? And, and you get this kind of nice, perfectly medium rare color from edge to edge, which was, a, which was a novel thing at the time, right? And people didn't really, were not used to seeing their meat like that. Usually if you, if you ordered medium rare at a restaurant, you would get this kind of bullseye pattern where the center is medium rare and it gets progressively more cooked as you get to the edge. Um, and so it was this novel thing. And I was like, okay, like how can we adapt this, adapt this idea to home cooking, um, which is where the idea of like starting it in a low temperature oven and then searing it. And, and of course it turns out later, several years later, in fact, almost like a decade later, I don't remember exactly when, but I found out, oh, there's actually like a couple of people who were doing this um, or something similar to it um, before we published that article. So I don't want I don't want to take credit for having invented that because there were people doing it before we published that article. But um, but anyhow, the point was like it was it, it was it was again it was like the reason I was able to come up with that idea was partly because I was very systematically you know I I cooked it was like a, over a hundred different tests I did on that um, one pan seared steak recipe. But the actual sort of inspiration for cooking it slowly first and finishing with a sear came directly from a technique from adapting a restaurant technique sous vide. Um, mm. that I had been doing at a restaurant before that. So it, again, it was sort of like a combination of testing, but then also just like things that were in my head by virtue of having some experience and then putting those two things together. And I, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's sort of where creativity lies is like putting ideas together and seeing what happens when you are, or being able to relate to ideas and seeing what, what connects them and, and what new things can be created out of putting those ideas together. I mean, I, th- I certainly think that's a lot of like what good writing is about. It's like, connecting ideas and being able to especially sort of i think scientific writing we're writing about science for a non-science audience um a lot of that comes down to being able to relate relatively complicated scientific 
principles into terms that people can understand, per- terms that people can relate to in their everyday life and drawing metaphors and using language um, that is not usually used in science to, to get people to glom onto it better. And I think that, you know, that, that's sort of, I think what I, what I work the hardest at as far, mm. as, far as my job goes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the art of science communication is, is figuring out how to, how to do that and, and how to find the right metaphors and analogies that work for people. You know, I think that a lot of uh, creativity measurements that we have actually try to capture this. Like we have this measurement called the remote associates test, uh, which is very, very popular, which is this idea that like the more kind of remotely associated things are, the more creative that is. So if, if like you give you know, if you if you ask someone to, you know, what what is the what is the best chocolate chip cookie recipe? Well, most people mm-hmm. will give you, you know, well, you got to, you know, do this, that and the other thing you got to put in these ingredients. But remotely, someone might say, well, you know, you should put starch in there. And that might be like, you know, a, a remote associate would say, oh, well, that's more creative because it still makes mm-hmm. sense. I don't know if it makes sense. I've never put starch in cookies, but <laughs> you seem to like starch. So I feel like that could be <laughs> potentially possible. But, you know, so that you're kind of capturing something that we do struggle with, like, as creativity researchers, how do you quantify that process of finding things that are associated or finding these kinds of connections amongst disparate things that other people miss? Right. I don't know. You have any advice for that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say um, talking to kids a lot helps because they tend to associate things that you would never, never, ever think of associating. It's always like, 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 I mean, yeah, I have a five, you have an eight-year-old and a three-year-old. I have a, mm-hmm. a five-year-old. My nine-year-old is, not, my nine-month-old is not doing that yet, but like my five-year-old is always saying like <laughs> yeah. craziest things and connecting these weird things that you would never think. Um, <laughs> I remember one day um, she came home and, um, oh, and I asked her if she wanted um, any hummus. Uh-huh. Um, and she's like, no, I don't like hummus. No, she's like, wait, you mean hummus with chickpeas or hummus like the tank engine? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so cute. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, and so now, yeah, now we call, we are, every time we talk about hummus, we talk about hummus, hummus the tank kitchen. Um, but yeah, just, you know, it's like funny connections that like about like words that you never think would be associated with each other, right? Concepts that you never think would be associated with each other. Um, kids have a really good way of doing that. But, but, you know, I, I find that at least when I'm in a sort of creative rut or when I feel like I can't write, you know, which happens a lot, there's usually mm-hmm. two things which help. One of them is just like forcing myself to, to sit down and write whatever. Um, and, and oftentimes, like if it's a specific story, what I will do is I will, I'll just start from the middle. It's like, mm. I know, like, I don't, I, I'm writing this right now. I'm working on this piece for the New York Times about grilling corn. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to introduce mm. this story because like everybody writes mm. grilling corn every summer, right? So I don't know what interesting thing to say at the beginning, but I do know like what's specific about the technique I'm using. So I'm just going to start, imagine that the first three paragraphs are already written and mm-hmm. just jump right in and start writing. Um, and then usually what I find is that one of the paragraphs I end up writing would actually be very good. As mm. the first paragraph. And sometimes what I find is like, if I do start at the beginning, just cutting off the very first paragraph I wrote, wrote and starting from the second paragraph is usually a more compelling story anyway. Um, huh. So, you know, that, that's part of my editing process. Just get it, just get it out there. But the other thing I find when I'm in a creative rut is that just not writing at all and just taking like a long bath and reading a lot and like mm. consuming things uh, that other people have done that I enjoy, whether it's like going back and reading and especially if it's like non-food related, you know, or just books that I enjoy, novels or the things that I've enjoyed reading in the past, rereading them um, will often remind me, oh, like this is what I enjoy mm. reading about this person's work. Or, like, this is the kind of thing I find funny. And that helps you, uh, I think. That's really great advice. 
And uh, it reminds me of something Ernest Hemingway once said, some advice that he was giving about how to how to you know combat writer's block, which is to always end the day knowing what's going to happen next in your novel. So like most of us kind of like write until we get everything out and then we have no more ideas. And mm. then the next morning we're staring at the blank page once again. <laughs> right. He was like, look, just leave something in the cup so that when you sit down the next morning, you know exactly what's, you know, you're already getting uh-huh. going which I thought was really interesting. And it kind of re- relates to what you're doing. Like you're starting in the middle so that you, you, you don't spend too much time with that awful blank page. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I get the same way about like, about housework. Like, so my wife and I take very different approaches to housework, especially like home improvement projects, like where I'm the kind of person where it's like, all right, here's this big long list of things that needs to be done. I'm just going to jump in and do the one that seems most appealing for me to do right now. I'll get it done. Like I know I'm, I'm going to go into it with like, gusto. I'll do it passionately. I'll get it done quickly and well. And then I'll think about what I'm doing. going to do next. Whereas my wife likes to sort of, this is what we're doing day one, day two, day two, and plan out day by day. So it's like, it's very conflicting style. And, I, and I'm not saying like one is better than the other. It's just, I think you kind of have to know what gets you going and what, what works best for you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So. No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So one of the questions from our audience, Alex Leviton, uh, is saying that the food lab changed the way that their household cooks and also looks at science, which is kind of amazing um, and awesome. And they ask, how does how do the exactitudes of science and architecture support the inexactitude of creative processes and your creativity? I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer for both, but I'll focus more on the cooking. But um, some people think that there's a sort of um, dichotomy between you know science and art or science and mm-hmm. creativity. And I don't, I don't think they're at odds at all. You know, like I consider science a, a tool, you know, and so it's like knowing how something works doesn't mean that it only works one way. And mm-hmm. so. Um, it, it, it's it's sort of like if you think about like a musician, right? You know, a, a jazz musician who's trying to improvise. Like, yeah, there's a lot of creativity in improvising, but as any good jazz musician will tell you, like, you have to practice your scales, you have to practice like your finger shapes, you have to practice your movement, you have to get the technical aspects built into you, and then only then can you use them to express your creativity. So for me, it's like with with cooking, it's like the better you know technique, and the more you understand how things interact with each other. Those are not restrictive things. Those are actually freeing things because then it allows you so that whatever you have in your head, it's much easier for you to get out onto the plate 
if you know how mm-hmm. things are going to act. And so in many ways, I find that understanding, and it's the same in architecture, right? It's like, there is a degree of freedom to just being able to sit down at a drafting table and draw whatever you want and, and come up with these wacky ideas. But then I think the real creativity comes when you try and mold those, I, those wack, crazy ideas um, through a lens of understanding structures and understanding how people move through buildings and understanding how things support each other and refining those ideas into something that works. And I think that intersection between the functionality and the real physical aspects of it and like the creative ideas is um, what makes like good architecture beautiful. And and the same with food. It's like you can admire a piece of food for the creativity of the the flavors that go into it or the the ideas in it, but you can, but those things are all supported by the technique that goes into it and by, um, and you know, you know, when, when someone's a very good craftsman um, and has practiced hard at it, whether, whether they understand like the specific science behind it or not, you, you can, you can get a understanding of the functional elements of it mm. by just doing it a lot, by cooking a lot. Right. And so you can tell when someone is both creative and also a very good craftsman. And it's, it's hard to tell if someone's created creative, if they can't express their creation, right? Mm-hmm. In order to be able to express yeah. the creation, you have to have that craft behind you. So Food Lab is a book that puts you onto the stage, but you know, it came out of also a very successful blog as you were as you were describing. And I think it really introduced a lot of people to this notion that you don't need to, it doesn't need to be scary to um, infuse science in your cooking, that that's something that, you know, is accessible to everyone, which I think a lot of us scientists really are excited to see. And I think that's a huge influence that you've made as, as Alex suggests that science in general doesn't have to be inaccessible to people. And then in April 2020, I believe you started yeah. Kenji's cooking show. Right. <laughs> and so I want to talk a little bit about sort of what was the idea behind that. Um, one of the things I love about Kenji's cooking show for people who haven't seen it yet is uh, you basically, you know, Kenji says hello in the beginning and then and then you see what he's doing through a GoPro on his head. So I'm assuming right. where you got your your GoPro there. And I, so it's um, like you're that's yeah, one of these. Uh, I just put this on my head like that. Uh-huh, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it's like remarkably casual. Like uh, the one that I watched most recently uh, as I was, you know, looking through some of the recipes in, in the walk was, um, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute too. I, I wanted to uh, watch you produce a recipe that I wouldn't traditionally think of as one that would be used in a walk. So I mm-hmm. watched where you made spaghetti with garlic right. and oil, like a kind of what seemed to me a pretty traditional Italian recipe here right. you're using like a very non-Italian instrument. And, and one of my favorite parts at the end was like when you give your dog a piece of banana because he can't have or she can't have yeah, garlic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. um, but that's like watching you do this and it, you, you, know, you make it seem so easy and so uh, um, accessible. And yet you seem to also have a particular reason for everything that you're doing. Like, for example, how much salt to put into the water to use a saute pan to boil the water in the pasta, as right. opposed to what mo- most of us do, which is this like massive deep pan. deep pan. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about like, I do want to talk about that particular, like just that approach and, and how sure. it relates to the walk. But I, but just tell us a little bit about how Kenji's cooking show started and were you surprised by his <laughs> <laughs> Um, You know, for, for a long time, we started doing recipes at Series Eats in 2008 or 2009. Mm-hmm. And at that time, video was not a big thing, right? Um, YouTube, I think it started in like 2007, but it, you know, it wasn't a big thing, but then, you know, sometime around like 2012 or 13, we were like, you know, video is going to be the thing. Like blogs are cool right now. That's what get it, it's getting <laughs> traffic, but videos are going to be the thing. 
I think everybody saw the wind kind of blowing that way. And so we started thinking about like ways we could do video and, uh, um, you know, and I try, especially like food lab contests, like how does this translate to video? And, you know, in many ways, I think I was kind of restricted by the idea that it had to be this like polished produced thing. And so, you know, mm -hmm. we tried that various ways. Like we, we spent $50,000 hiring a full film crew and shot like a six episode miniseries based on the food lab that was scripted and had a co-host, um, and then, you know, and then we shot a bunch of stuff in-house that was all, all scripted. And then, uh, and then, you know, eventually when I moved to California, I started doing stuff with like multiple cameras and, and scripts. And then, I, you know, I very quickly realized like, well, not very quickly, but over the course of a few years, I realized like I'm terrible at scripted stuff. Like I just, I just sound totally unnatural when I'm reading a script. Um, so like, I'm good at writing, but I'm not very good at just speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, 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 the idea to be tied, um, just sticking a GoPro on my head, that actually came because I, um. It was late one night and I had come home from a vacation in Mexico where I had bought a GoPro so that I could shoot, you know, snorkeling stuff. Uh, <laughs> and and GoPro, all, that's why I bought mine, you know, scuba diving. <laughs> <laughs> and the GoPro was on my desk, which is in the kitchen. Uh, and I was going to make a uh, grilled cheese or something. And I, and I was like, oh, like, what if I just stick the GoPro on my head and make the grilled cheese? You know, it, there, that movie, um, I think it was called Hardcore Harry or Hardcore Henry or something like that. It was like a, it was a movie that looked like a video game that came out right. It was, it was, I don't know, 2015, 14 or something like that. All shot first person style. And that movie had just come out. So I was like, oh, like people are into this first person thing. Maybe, maybe like, what if I put a camera on my head and did it? Um, and so I did that just for fun. Um, it was with an older GoPro. So no like image stabilization or anything really jittery. But I put that up on YouTube. And then over the, you know, the, over the next couple of years, I just did it a couple more times just for fun. And I never really paid attention to who was watching it or what was mm. going on with it. And then, yeah, like March of 2020, I was just looking at my YouTube channel. I was like, oh, this video has like a million views. And mm -hmm. I was just, it was just me making a grilled cheese like four years ago, whatever it was. Um, uh, maybe I'll try doing some more like that. And so, um, so I got a better camera and I stuck it on my head. And at that point, you know, by that point, my book had come out um, and I had gotten actually quite used to, you know, I've, I've never been, when I was younger, at least I'd never been very good at talking in front of crowds i get i get mm -hmm. stage fright i get nervous talking for large crowds but but it was one of these things where it's like you practice it and get better and better at it so my book came out and i went on book tour and so i got used to talking in front of crowds i got used to like teaching demos especially like cooking and talking while i was cooking and showing mm -hmm. people what i was doing and then also you know when you do live demos you're always making mistakes and so you have to be able to talk about why this mistake mm -hmm. happened and just roll with it and so um i you know i so i had this kind of like practice doing that and it's kind of banter already set up um mm -hmm. and so the parts that made me nervous about being on camera which is like having a camera pointed in my face and having to talk to it from a script mm -hmm. um, by sticking the camera in my own head so that people weren't looking at me and they were focusing really on the food um i could just pretend i was showing a friend or showing a an odd live audience and talk mm -hmm. through what i was cooking i mean that's really how i thought of it it's just like i'm i'm, I'm just pretend i'm doing a live demo um, which essentially is what i am doing it's going to be casual people understand that it's live um so it's okay to have mistakes in it um and uh that was sort of the formula. It was sort of like the anti, you know, anti cooking show thing where it's like, not, it's just about the food. It's not really about my, you don't really see me in it much. It's not scripted. I don't plan what I'm doing ahead of time. So like oftentimes you'll see, like, I don't have the exact right ingredients for a recipe. And I think it ends up being actually like a very good compliment for the book because the book seems like this very precise thing. It's like, you need this exact list of 40 ingredients or whatever. But you know, what I try to show in the show is like, Hey, like I'm a normal person with a normal house. There's, family members here there's dogs like it's always a mess because i have two kids and like my wife and i have different ideas of 
kitchen organizations that things are all over the place. Like this is how most people live. And so um, I think showing how like understanding these principles of cooking and how they can apply to a chaotic everyday life and how they can actually help you navigate that in the kitchen, um, I think is what has become attractive. And people don't, it's massively successful. I mean, you really, it's like the anti-cooking show that like beat out all the cooking shows um, <laughs> out there. And it's sort of like out Jamie Olivering Jamie Oliver. <laughs> well, I don't know. That, that it's like, like one of my favorite moments is where like, you're like looking for, a, you know, a, an instrument and you like pull out a drawer and it's like the drawer is a mess and you're like, where's the, oh, here it is. And then it's like, yeah, now I feel like I can pick up that cookbook, The Walk, and yeah. do whatever it is in there because I watch you do this one recipe in it. And when I just see it on the page, it feels like, oh, this is going to be a lot of work and going to be hard. And then just watching you do it, I was like, oh, that's, I can totally do that. And so so let me talk. Let, can I talk about like a couple of little specific things? One, it seems like you use <laughs> a lot of salt, especially in that recipe. Okay. <laughs> and I wonder if you could, and I know that this is true of, of chefs in general, but I wonder if you ever think about like, what is the science behind using a lot of salt in recipes? Why is it that it makes things more flavorful? And why is it such a like universal tool? And do we have to worry about it ultimately in terms of how it affects our health? I mean, the reason it makes foods taste good is because it, I mean, it literally like opens up neural pathways that, that help you taste things better, right? So it's like if, if you eat a tomato with no salt on it, it tastes fine. But then you put salt on it, it does, even just like a teeny pinch of salt, not enough to make it taste salty. It'll just taste more like a tomato, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because it allows your tongue to perceive these things better. So in that sense, you know, yeah, salt is the reason, you know, and, well, and, and also the reason chefs use a lot of salt um, is partly because, especially like, you know, I had a, I had a beer hall. And so it's like, you use as much salt as you can without making food taste like out of this world salty because people order beer when they're, when they, <laughs> when, when they're they thirsty. Eat it, you know, and then salt tastes good, right? That, that's part of what makes restaurant food tastes better than home cookers because it's seasoned up to like up to the edge of where it becomes impalatable. You know, and I, I think there probably is something to the idea that chefs like over time lose sensitivity to it. So things that seem reasonably well seasoned to a normal person might seem under seasoned to me. Um, the health thing, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist, so I can't really, from, you know, from what I gather, most people are fine with you know, it's like talk to your doctor. Some people, some people are very sensitive to salt. Some people have specific health reasons they need to limit their salt intake, but most people just pee it out. Um, so mm -hmm. you're probably fine unless you have high blood pressure or some other issue that you're dealing with. And, you know, for me, it's like, I feel like if you're cooking at home and you're generally cooking from scratch and you're cooking, you know, and you're preparing your own foods and you're eating a wide variety of foods, you're doing a good job of keeping it. It's like, you know, really, I think people worry a little too, you, you know, it's like, you know, when you're being healthy. Right. And you know, right. you know, it's like, don't eat hamburgers every day. You know, that's not good for you. You don't eat a pound of bacon every day. You know, that's not good for you. Just like eat a variety of things, eat mostly vegetables, like all, all these, all those things that I think people know and then try to like finagle their way around because they want to eat more of something else. And that's fine. Like sometimes I, you know, but, you know, but I think also people like, you know, people ask me a lot like, oh, how are you not like 300 pounds doing what you do? And it's like, well, what you see all is not necessarily what I always eat, right? It's like you see maybe make like one video a week. And so you're seeing one meal out of the 20 something meals that I eat in each week. And that's not necessarily, you know, you're, I'm not going to show you like every little salad I eat. And the same, it's like on my Instagram, I, I, um, I go around and taste things, but it doesn't mean that like I ate, mm -hmm. I go and order like four slices of pizza because I want to try 
four different types of pizza. I didn't eat all four of those slices of pizza all by myself all at once. Right. And so, you know, generally it's like portion control, getting a good wide variety of foods. Um, Pre-pandemic, I exercised, like I went to the gym six days a week and now I don't, which is why I gained like 30 pounds through the pandemic. But in general, I think just the, the same advice everyone has, which is like eat a variety of healthy foods and exercise, then you're probably fine. Or point like salt intake, I, I don't feel like is your biggest concern really. Yeah, you're making me feel a lot better because uh, I once made the mistake of putting a little bit of salt on some cucumbers for my daughter, mm-hmm. my three-year-old, and now she like will not eat cucumbers without salt. I wish <laughs> like, <laughs> she is like, we go anywhere. Like, she's like, is, is, did you put salt on the cucumbers? <laughs> That's actually what like one of my earliest flavor memories I remember is like my as my grandmother sprinkling salt yeah. on like on cucumber slices and thinking, oh my god, like this is so good. All of a sudden, it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, So Hannah says, you obviously have a lot of experience cooking. And one of the things that she's noticed in your videos is that you feel comfortable making extreme substitutions, which we creativity researchers could argue is like highly creative. Um, But it also seems to take a lot of like, how do you feel comfortable making these um, substitutions? Is it a matter of like, well, you just know that X equals Y or will have the same effect or? It's a little of both. Like part, so part of it is just experience and knowing that like, you know, what fish sauce adds to a dish is pretty similar to what soy sauce adds to a dish, you know, something like that. I don't know what extreme substitutions are like, but yeah, but part of it is that. And then the other part of it is just not caring. It's like, sometimes it's like, okay, if I want, if I want to recreate that childhood dish I had, I want to recreate like my favorite dish from this restaurant and do it exactly the right way, then sure, no substitutions. Like if I want to um, Mm. fairly test someone's recipe from Mm. a book, then Sure, I'll do no substitutions, but most of the time I don't care. It's like, I don't care if it's exactly the same as the last time I had it. I don't care if if it's exactly the way my mom made it. Like, I'm going to taste it as I go. If it tastes good to me right now, then to me, that's what matters at that point, you know? And, and, you know, so I think there's a big difference between home cooking and like restaurant. It's like at my restaurant, we have recipe books with procedures and you weigh out everything. Everything has to be exactly the same every time because when a customer comes in, they want the potato salad to taste exactly the same. They want the potato salad. They know. Right. And so in those cases, like, yeah, no substitutions. We get the same ingredients from the same suppliers. We weigh everything. We follow the exact same procedures. But home cooking, I don't think has to be that way. It's like you're cooking for yourself and your family. So just take it easy. You know, it's like <laughs> do whatever you want. Yeah. The worst yeah. case scenario, it's like it's very rare that you're going to mess up a dish so badly that you can't eat it. And so the worst case scenario, it's like it's going to taste a little weird and you'll try again next time. You know, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite things that David Byrne, the musician, has written in, in his book, How Music Works, which where he laments the death of the amateur musician. Um, mm-hmm. And he he talks about how some of the great creative leaps actually have come from amateurs because they don't care. You know, mm-hmm. he quotes uh, a famous film director from Spain who basically said, look, all the great directors, their their masterpieces are the movies they didn't care about. Um, that just turned out to be great because they took all these risks. And I think that's really a good lesson for a lot of us to learn because like, you know, especially if you're if you're a professional creative and there's like a lot of pressure in terms of you doing your best stuff, sometimes caring too much can come in the way of creativity. I'm <laughs> pulling up this very heavy book. That's why it's not on my desk. Um, okay. I called The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. Uh, this is your most recent book just came out. And I want to talk about, first of all, why it is that the wok is the tool that you reach for most often when you're cooking at home. Well, obviously, part of it has to do with the fact that, like, I, you know, I grew up in an Asian household. My mother's Japanese, my grandparents are Japanese, and um, I grew up with with all three of them at home. And Japanese was my first language. My mom cooked a lot in a wok. Um, Anytime she deep fried, it was in a wok. So part of it is just something that I was used to. And, you know, my dad is 
always been obsessed with Chinese food. And so we spent a lot of time going around, you know, Boston and New York, Chinatown and eating. So, so just the types of dishes that are traditionally cooked in walks are things that are particularly appealing to me. But, you know, beyond that, I just find it to be an extraordinarily versatile pan, um, especially for the type of cooking which I do, which is generally fast and improvisational and based on what I have. I think a walk mm -hmm. is great for that. It's like, it's a great tool for when you go to the farmer's market or when, or when you dig through your vegetable drawer and you have like a bunch of half-used vegetables, like figuring out ways to use those. I think um, a walk is a great tool for doing that. But uh, yeah, it's just versatile. It's, it's it, you know, it's, people think of it as a tool just for stir frying, but um, it's the best pan for, it's the best pan in the kitchen that I can think of for deep frying. Um, you can steam in it, you can braise in it, um, you can shallow fry in it, you, you can toss pasta in it really easily. It's like, you're mentioning that video with the garlic mm -hmm. spaghetti, but you know, when you, when you finish pasta uh, and you, you're adding pasta water and you're trying to emulsify it in a pan, like a wok is like built for tossing and stirring. So it's like great for doing stuff like that as well. So I think just the, the size of it and the lightweightness and the versatility makes it makes it really useful. Um, it's hard. It's hard to say because I don't like I don't specifically think to myself every day like today I'm going to choose the the wok. You know, like I, I just right. find myself reaching for it. It's, it's and I've had you know I've had the same wok in my kitchen for over twenty years and I use it virtually every day at least at least multiple times a week and uh, I just find myself reaching for like more than anything else. Which is something that, you know, I talked about it in my first book in the food lab at the beginning, how there's a whole section of pots and pans at the beginning. And I wrote this big thing about the walk and how, how versatile and how great it is. Um, and then uh, there was originally a walk chapter in that book that we edited out mm -hmm. because the book was too long, but we never edited out that bit that says like walks are amazing. So there's this whole bit that says mm -hmm. walks are awesome mm -hmm. and then like nothing else in the rest of the book. <laughs> um, right. So when I started writing the second volume of it, I started again, this was like one of those things where it's like, you know, where I have the list of house chores and I just did whatever seemed easiest to me. And so I had this list of bits of the, that was going to go to the second volume of the food lab. And the walk was like the part that was like, that's the part, that's the one that I want to write. Start. Huh. And so I started writing that. Um, and uh, yeah, like several hundred pages <laughs> in and I haven't gotten past like the introduction and the stir fries yet. So yeah, I know. Editor, let's 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 make this into a whole book. And she likes the yeah, idea. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely so the walk was one of the instruments that we actually got rid of a number of years ago because we weren't using it enough. And now mm. we're going to have to go and buy a new one <laughs> because you've convinced us that. But one of the things that I think um, a lot of people are thinking about now and 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 they're they're switching their gas stove mm -hmm. for induction cooktops because it's right. just more environmentally friendly. And that's the right. one thing that there doesn't seem to be an attachment that you could or a, a wok that is usable on in an induction oven. Yeah. Is there or there are? are. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So for certain dishes, there's this flavor wok, hey, like that smokiness, right? Uh, mm. The breath of the wok that is an essential part of the dish. So in particular dishes like beef chow fun or certain types of fried rice um, or fried greens where you want that smoky flavor, that's really hard to get on induction or mm. resistive coil cooktops because that relies on actual flames, vaporize, mm. uh, you know, igniting the um, atomized oil and um, having those sort of like carcinogenic, delicious things fall back into the food and that get right. that smoky flavor. So those dishes are hard to recreate without gas. That said, like 99% of the dishes you cook in a wok, like don't really require that flavor um, and can be done on induction. So you just need a flat bottom wok to work on induction. And in fact, like when I was on my book tour and doing demos, I did everything on induction. Oh, wow. Um, it works. It works fine at home. Um, I have a gas range at home. 
but I've tested every recipe in the book. I've also tested on an induction cooktop. Mm. Um, and the only ones that don't work are, yeah, those ones that require the wake flavor. So, you know, if you really want those flavors or you really want to say, cook a restaurant style dish that requires a ton of high heat and a gas flame, you can either get an outdoor burner, you know, for 100 to 200 bucks if you have the outdoor space, or you can get a, like a camp stove, like a portable, you know, butane mm. tank burner, um, which don't use them in your home unless your home is well ventilated. But if you have like a range hood that, you, that a lot of people do, even over their induction cooktops, like you can set it right up, right on the cooktop mm. and use the gas flame there. Um, and just pull it out just when you want to do those specific dishes. Or if you prefer having the gas just for the walk, pull that out just for when you're using the walk. And those actually work really well. Um, you know, induction cooktops. So my gas range right now, it's, it's a, it's a relatively like high end home range, you know, and it, the gas, the, the biggest burner on it, I think gets up to 18,500 BTU per hour, right? Mm -hmm. A restaurant style gas, um, walk range will get up to around 100 to 150,000 BTU per hour. So about 10 times more. Uh, on the order of 10 times more, a induction cooked up that plugs into regular household, the 120 volt outlet, um, the maximum it can do is 1800 watts, which I think is the equivalent of about 6,000 uh, to 6,500 or so mm -hmm. BTU per hour. So it seems like it's a lot weaker than an 18,500 BTU stove, but what you have to remember is that induction is 100% efficient. So mm -hmm. the only thing that's heating up when you put a Ferris pan on an induction cooktop is the metal itself. So you're losing almost virtually no heat to the outside air. Whereas with a gas range, especially one that's designed for a Western skillet, you know, West, like your big burner, the big burner on a, on a gas range has a wide spread pattern because it's designed mm -hmm. to heat up like a big 12 inch skillet evenly. Whereas, so when you put a wok on it, a lot of that heat just dissipates. It mm -hmm. goes straight up the sides, goes out to the sides of the kitchen, it heats up your kitchen. Um, so you're actually getting, you know, comparable heat levels um, as far using using a regular household current um, induction cooktop, like a normal induction cooktop and a really powerful Western style gas burner. Um, so in you know, many ways, they're com comparable. And those little butane burners, the ones that are designed for camp stoves, if you get one that does around 15,000 uh, BTU per hour, which is about the highest they get, um, there's a couple companies that make those. Iwatani is the one that I use. Those ones actually have flames that concentrate more. So they actually mm. heat my wok will work a lot better on like one of those on that little dinky portable mm. cooktop than it does on like my, the biggest burner on my home range. Um, so all those things like mm. comparing like the numbers and then the BTU output on those things can be a little deceptive. And so people who think that their induction cooktop is not powerful enough, um, it is. It, it, you just mm. have to um, learn how to properly preheat things and, and cooking batches, et cetera. Uh, well, all the things you'd have to do with the gas range anyway. Wow, that's, that's uh, really encouraging and good to know. And so we're coming up to the end of our hour, and um, Connie Phelps has a really interesting question. Um, she apparently, or they apparently, conducted a molecular gastronomy Saturday <laughs> in enrichment camp for children. Okay. <laughs> which um, sounds like that's totally what I would sign up my kids for, if I could. Um, and and they, they purchased your book in preparation. I'm not sure if that's the food lab or the walk or every night is pizza night, which is your children's. <laughs> I'm assuming it's the latter. But they ask, what are the top three things you would tell children about food science? I would avoid thinking of like specific food science principles and just think more about science in general, which is that like, mm -hmm. you know, like so with my with my daughter, um, the way we encourage her to think about food, um, especially like be open to new ideas and food um, is to actually do experiments. So we'll do so we'll do like taste tests. So so sometimes what we'll do is like, we'll 
pull out like, we'll ask her to like, she'll pick out five different spices from the spice drawer or we'll pull out like mm. three different olive oils and we'll, we'll do taste tests and we'll ask her to think about things critically. And so we'll taste things one at a time, um, ask her to use words to describe it, or we can give her like mm. a set of like 10 words and she can pick which ones describe it. Um, and so I think getting kids to think critically like that is just like a, it's just good practice mm. in general for analytical thinking and scientific thinking. And it's really easy to apply to food because it's something you do every day. Um, another thing that we like to do with our daughter is when she's eating foods, um, you know, some kids like to disassemble and eat ingredients separately, you know, which my, my daughter does also like you give them a sandwich, she'll eat, or like you give her a bagel with cream cheese and she'll lick all the cream cheese off first and then she'll eat the bagel. And so what we, we, what we try and encourage her to do is sometimes do the opposite where we'll, it's like, okay, she's got like a cucumber on her plate and she's got like some yogurt on her plate. All right. Like eat some cucumber, eat some yogurt. Now eat them together and describe what's different when you eat them together versus huh. separately. Um, so again, I think just encouraging the sort of creativity and analytical thinking. And then finally, um, I think encouraging kids to write things down and remember things, mm. you know, and, and to be open to new experiences. So it's like, if my daughter says, I, I don't like asparagus, right? Which sometimes she doesn't like asparagus. It's like, all right, you can remember, you don't like, like it. We'll ask her each day, like, what are the things that you do? Like, what are the things you don't like? Well, not every day, but occasionally. So she has this like list going, but what we always encourage her to do is like to remember that just because you said something today doesn't mean that it's going to apply in the future and you can always retest it. So it's like, instead of saying, I don't like asparagus, and I guess this is not necessarily so much of an analytical thinking or a scientific principle, but just a general good eating principle uh, that you can say like, I don't like asparagus, if, but don't say like, yuck asparagus, I don't like asparagus, but it's much better to say, I don't like asparagus today. But maybe mm. when I'm older, I'll like it. Maybe tomorrow I'll like it. Or maybe if I try it with a different food, I'll like it. Um, and so I think encouraging kids to have an open mind and an analytic mind and to think about what they're doing instead of just blindly doing it is like, those are all good things to think. Like, those are all things that you need to do in science, I feel like. And, you know, and, and I think people think of science as a lot of people who haven't practiced science, like maybe think of it as a non-creative field. But I think you have to be extremely creative to be good at science. Like, you know, ideas don't just come from nowhere. It's, it's not just, like science is not just blindly trying things until something works, right? It's you have a set of ideas and you have to decide which are the ones that are likely to work. And you have to take ideas from different places and stick them together to try and come up with creative solutions for things. So I think encouraging kids to be creative in that way and think analytically and put things together is, um, is just in general, whether food or not, and whether it's just in general, good training to, to be good at science in the future. Yeah, we're just going to trim that clip and put it on our homepage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kenji. So for, if people want to learn more, if you haven't read The Food Lab, uh, it's available booksellers everywhere, along with The Walk, Recipes and Techniques, his most recent book. And his children's book, Every Night is Pizza Night. And you can watch Kenji's cooking show, which I highly recommend on YouTube. Kenji, thank you so much for joining us for this um, special crosstalk at the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity yeah. and Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kai Raihala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.